can judge me. That's not what Paul's saying. If you think that, you're not getting it from the Bible. Rules, in many ways, are good. They're guardrails for us to live a life of flourishing, especially biblical rules, the Ten Commandments. You should obey the Ten Commandments. Paul thinks the law is a good thing, but extra-biblical rules, rules that build on top of Scripture that say, if you do this, you'll really get to the varsity level. Those are what Paul is saying to avoid. He's saying, don't let anyone oppose these things upon you. And then he tells us why. Paul's opposed to these things. He's opposed to this religious action because it detracts from the sufficiency of Jesus. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All of these Old Testament codified rules that these people in Colossae were being, have, having imposed upon them, all of those things were intended at the very beginning to show Jesus to people. But Paul's saying to demand adherence to these things after Jesus has come is to go in reverse. And that was a super popular thing in Paul's day. He deals with this question in a lot of letters. Romans, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, here in Colossians. And you know what? It's also popular today. This mindset is popular. Let me give you some guidelines or rules. And if you do them, you'll have all you need. That's a very popular mindset in Christian circles. Let me give you some guidelines and rules, and if you do them, you'll have all you need. Why is that popular? Here's why. We love rules. You might think, I don't love rules. Yes, you do. You love rules. You love rules, especially if you're an American Christian, because we don't like the ambiguity that comes from living a life of faith. And let's face it, faith brings ambiguity. Faith brings ambiguity. The Christian life is a life of faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we don't like that. What we like and what we want are things that are clear, simple, and predictable. Rules. Rules give us that, we think. But living a life of faith, that is hard. And that's ambiguous. And also, to top it off, that often involves pain. So is this still going on today? The answer is yes, and I'm going to tell you how right now. This is still going on today. Um, religious people love to judge others by their own rules and not by the scripture. Let me give you some examples. Alcohol. I'm going to make all of you mad, so if you're getting mad now, just wait, and I'll make the people next to you mad, probably. Okay, alcohol. There are entire denominations, entire circles of Christianity, and many Christians that say if you consume alcohol in any way, you are outside of God's will. You are sinning. You may not do this. This has happened in my life many times. When we first started this church, we had a family that came to our church right as we were getting going that found out through Facebook that my brother works at a bar, and I, his, his bar was being recognized for some really cool award that they were winning for being a great restaurant and bar. And my brother was on this TV show, and I shared it on Facebook. And this guy saw it and just reamed me out. I mean, he let me have it and told me that anyone who partakes in anything like that cannot be following Jesus Christ. At a prior church I served in in Arizona, we had people leave our church when we started using wine in communion. People will say, if you engage alcohol, you are outside of God's will. The Welch family, grape juice was invented because of this. Do you know that? In the 1870s, the Welch family figured out that if you pasteurize grape juice, it's not going to ferment. 
And their very first slogan, Welch's Grape Juice, which we're going to use here in a minute, so yeah, we can't use wine here, it's a school. Welch's Grape Juice's very first slogan said, finally we can eat the Lord's Supper without drinking the devil's drink. <laughs> now listen, you're laughing at me. And you're laughing at this, and we know that entire denominations impose this. There are schools and Christian colleges that make you sign a statement saying, I will not drink alcohol if I'm 21 or over, because it's sinful. But in our circles, to be honest, we sometimes do the exact opposite. We sometimes have unwritten rules that if you don't drink alcohol, you're irreligious, or you're immature. And that's just as bad, folks. Are you free to drink alcohol with moderation? Yes. Is drunkenness a sin? Yes. Is it wrong to ever consume alcohol? No. That's a rule. It's extra biblical. Here's another one. Homeschooling. I'm not going to just pick on homeschoolers. Any schooling choice, any schooling choice where you say you have to do this to be a mature Christian. Hey, the Bible says trust God with your kids. And guess what? That's ambiguous and it really makes us nervous as parents and we don't like it. What we want is someone to come tell us, if you homeschool, and if you use this curriculum, or, let me not pick on the homeschoolers, if you go to a classical charter school, you're going to get a superior education, and your kids are going to be godly, and they're going to love Jesus, and they're going to marry a godly person, and they're going to have godly kids, and you're set for life spiritually. We love that. We love it. And that's a rule. That's not in the Bible. We don't like ambiguity, so rules help us. Now, can you homeschool? Absolutely. Should you impose it as the only way for believers? Absolutely not, but we love to think in these terms. And if we're honest, deep down, sometimes we're judging others because they don't pick the schooling choice that we pick. We think they're less mature. Sabbath. Now, Presbyterians are the worst at this one. I hope this sermon isn't listened to by a lot of my Presbyterian friends. Presbyterians, I guarantee you, every one of you has broken the Sabbath this morning, according to some of my Presbyterian friends. Presbyterians and our tradition love to create infinite rules about how you keep the Sabbath. You can't go out to eat. You can only walk if you don't break a sweat. You can't throw a football. You can't turn on the TV. You have to calendar out your entire day, etc. I promise you, I've broken the Sabbath today in many ways according to these extra-biblical rules. They want to remove any ambiguity that comes from living a life of faith. Dancing. I went to Baylor, and at Baylor we say, don't have premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. People in our charismatic brothers and sisters say you can't dance anywhere except in church. And Reformed people say you can dance anywhere except church. Right? But the bottom line is we have rules for dancing to negotiate these things. And the point is this stuff happens all the time. If you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that. And so the question is what rules do you have? What rules do you have to decide if someone is really spiritual? Do you measure them by standards that the Bible doesn't? Do we have religiously imposed rules? Is your view of the Christian life all about what you do and do not abstain from? Now, these are characteristic religious impulses that exist in all of our hearts. And the bottom line is this. I want you to listen to me. Any form of Christianity that makes you arrogantly think you are better than other Christians is only fertilizing sin in your heart. It is not from Jesus. Any form of Christianity that makes you think you're better than other Christians, 
is not of Jesus. That's the way of religion. It's the way of dead orthodoxy. It's not the way of the gospel. And it's a huge reason why so many of us are tired of the church we grew up around. It's the way, a way, we fail to believe that Jesus is enough. We have these extra biblical rules. So one problem is that religious people judge others by their own rules. Problem two, religious people are dogmatic about secondary issues. Religious people are dogmatic about secondary issues. You see that in verse 18 and 19. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. That's basically another way of saying what he says in verse 16 regarding not letting anyone judge you. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Now, what's going on here? Religious people love, love to be dogmatic about secondary issues and secondary experiences. That's what this verse is teaching. What's asceticism? Asceticism was a way to discipline yourself by being hard on your body, by fasting, for example, or even in some cases, self-flagellation. What is worship of angels? That doesn't mean people worshiping angels. That means angels worshiping God. So apparently in Colossae, there was this big intramural debate about how exactly the cherubim and seraphim worship Yahweh. There's all kinds of debates and disputes about that in that culture. It's a theology issue that they squabbled over, apparently. And they also went on and on about visions that they had had. Particular spiritual experiences that they insisted made them more mature and more spiritual. Listen, those are hallmarks of religion. Is asceticism bad? No, fasting is actually very good. Is thinking about theology bad? No, we love thinking about theology. That's an important thing. Are spiritual experiences bad? No. But when there's secondary issues that, don't contra- that aren't the gospel and you insist on your way, you're acting in a way that's just religious. And that's what I've getting, been getting at the last few weeks when I've been teaching you about this idea of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, remember, comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And this is a huge temptation for us because the default mode of all of our hearts is to find ways we can get close to God instead of trusting that God has come close to us in Jesus. We're all captivated by the spiritual secret sauce, whatever it is. My, my little brother, Robert, is a really, really good golfer. And he was a great golfer from the time he was seven or eight years old, which is why I quit golf early on, because he smoked me every time, and an older brother can't abide that. So I was out on golf early, but Robert was great at golf, and my dad spent a ton of time helping Robert improve his golf game. And one thing the rest of our family noticed as we all grew up, that they never seemed to notice, which makes it funnier, is that they always thought they had found the next key to Robert getting over the hump, and he was already really good. They always thought they had found the next golfing secret sauce. We need this swing coach. We need to change your swing just right here. Your arm needs to be straight as you come back. And they would watch the TV and record Robert's swing. And my dad would mark things. It was crazy. We need to change golf balls or change clubs. And once we get that, that's going to be the key. They were looking for the gnosis of golf. You know, the real gnosis of golf is God-given talent. It's God-given talent and hard work. 
But we're all like that spiritually. We're all captivated by this idea that if we only get the secret, we'll really get over the hump. We all want deep down to be superior Christians who have latched on to the secret way. And then we go out like some sort of rabid Amway salesman, selling our secret sauce to all of our friends and driving them crazy. Now, I've been a Christian for some time. And I want to tell you, as I bet you know, there's no shortage of examples of this in our world today. They're plentiful. There's all kinds of ways that we think when we get it, we'll really become mature. The prayer of Jabez. Well, that's in the Bible. That book came out 20 years ago, and I'm telling you, churches were doing conferences, churches were throwing seminars. The prayer of Jabez was the key, man. If you pray the prayer of Jabez, that's the gnosis, that's the secret, that's the special ingredient that your Christian life has been missing. If you pray the prayer of Jabez, you're going to get to the next level. Tongues and charismatic experiences. That's been an issue ever since Pentecost. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He says, tongues are nothing special. Don't think they're the secret sauce, but that's what we still think. I've seen that many times, and the problem is not the gifts themselves, but when the gifts are used to assert spiritual superiority. Becoming Jewish and practicing the Jewish feast, that's a big thing here. That drives me crazy, to be honest. Can you observe Passover? Absolutely. You can observe Passover. That's a fine thing to do to see how, you know, the ancient symbols point us to Jesus Christ. But if you think that like reading the Bible in Hebrew or understanding God's name or whatever somehow makes you like more mature, you've bought into Gnosticism. It's exactly what Paul's saying you shouldn't do here. Being a social justice warrior and living in an urban metroplex. and care, That's a great thing to do. But when you think, hey, I'm more mature because I finally got this figured out, you're doing exactly, exactly what Paul says not to do. Now, none of these things are inherently bad. If you want to pursue these things, that's fine. Just don't make them central dogmas. Don't insist they're the key to spiritual maturity. Why? Why is that a problem? Well, look at what Paul says. They go on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. The problem with all of this is, first, religious people who are dogmatic about secondary issues disconnect from the head. That's what he says there. The head is Jesus. And when you think about that, it makes sense. The more you hold fast, the more you hold fast to whatever your spiritual secret is, the less you're holding fast to Jesus, who is the head of the church, who is the one that fills us with all his, fills us with all his fullness. In Jesus are hidden the riches of wisdom and knowledge. And so being dogmatic about secondary or tertiary issues disconnects us from dependency on Jesus. Second, Religious people who are dogmatic about secondary issues tend towards individualism and self-dependence. Look at the verse. If you have the key, you don't need other Christians. You just need the key. If you have the key, you don't need to be in community. You just need this special book that's seven spiritual steps to a perfect relationship with Jesus. Religion leads people to Lone Ranger Christianity. Religion leads people to Lone Ranger Christianity. And let me tell you, 
Lone Ranger Christianity makes it impossible for you to grow. You cannot grow in Christ on your own. Paul says that when we're not clinging to the head, we're no longer being nourished with the whole body, knit together through its joints and ligaments, ligaments growing with a growth that is from God. Growth comes from community with other Christians, not from doing your own thing. That's one huge warning sign, huge warning sign, that you or someone you know has fallen into the trap of religion when you don't think you need the church. If you don't think you need the church, but you need your secret, you are on a dangerous path. It's exactly what Paul gets at here. One problem with religion is that they judge other people by their rules. Secondly, they're dogmatic about secondary issues. Last thing, religious people are deceived regarding the nature of the flesh. They're deceived regarding the nature of the flesh. And this is maybe the most important point. Remember, religion is powerful because it preys on our inherent love for simple rules for living. And religious people especially appeal to American Christians who love efficiency and sensible steps to take to get to the clear destination. The bestseller lists in Christian bookstores are always about the secret. They're always about nine steps to a better you, five ways to pray well, three ways to lose weight the way Daniel did. What's the problem? What's the problem with someone relying on this stuff? The problem is that these things only have, verse 23, the appearance of wisdom. The appearance of wisdom. But really what they do is promote self-made religion. And, quote, Paul, have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Religion and religious rules and techniques, listen, they cannot really change you. The word Paul uses there, flesh, you've got to get that word if, you've got to, if you want to understand the New Testament. It's an important word in the Bible. That word refers to the remnants of indwelling sin that still exist in the Christian. Even though someone who's a Christian has died with Christ and has been raised with Christ, we still have the remnants of sin. Our old identity is still around, and that's the flesh. And so we act counter to our own identity when we sin, when we fall into the life of the flesh. And Paul's point is this, the way to fight the indulgence of the flesh is to continue to connect to Jesus Christ by faith through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have all we need in Jesus to kill sin, to kill the flesh right now. Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body or the flesh, you will live. We do that by the Spirit. Another way to put that is that the only power that can really change us, the only power that can really stop the indulgence of the flesh is a power that works from the inside out. The gospel. Through faith, the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, a new identity. We talked about that last week. And real spiritual power to fight sin. That happens when you believe the gospel and you're born again. You know that Jesus' death pardons your guilt and covers your sins and that his resurrection gives you new life. And then that plays out over the course of our life as we walk in Christ. We have the power internally, and through faith we access that power and fight sin. Religion, 
says we fight sin from the outside in. From the outside in. And that never works. That has no power. Why not? Well, listen to Jesus. He's a pretty good authority on this stuff. Mark 7. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. St. Jerome was a 5th century Christian, and he was a brilliant man. He's the man that translated the New Testament and the Old Testament into Latin. We know that as the Vulgate. There's your historical piece of data for the day. And St. Jerome really wanted to overcome sin in his life. He wanted to overcome the flesh, and so he spent a significant amount of time in his life living in the desert. Jerome went to the desert to get as far away from sin as possible to get as far away from all the bad stuff out there as he possibly could. And he fasted, and he prayed. And after a while, Jerome began to have visions. And you know what the visions were of? The dancing girls of Rome. His vision was of the dancing girls of Rome because you can take Jerome out of the sinful city, but you can't take the sinful city out of Jerome. People said that about me when I lived in Philadelphia. You can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the boy. You see, religion and rules would work great if the sin was out there. But Jerome brought his sin with him into the desert. Maybe you can get me to stop drinking and stop cussing and stop eating gluten and stop celebrating Halloween, but you can't rid me of my pride. And maybe I can do really, really good and you can take away my gluttony, but you take away my gluttony and you replace it with vanity. And the devil loves that. The devil's happy to have non-gluttonous, vain Christians walking around all over the place thinking that they're the newest, hottest thing. Only the gospel can change inside out. Only the gospel can deal with our indwelling problem of sin. So two things as we wrap up. First, a warning. Uh, some of you... <laughs> Some of you have sat through this sermon and thought, I hate those religious people. Dang them. You're being religious about not being religious. Don't do that. If you're responding to this sermon and thinking, man, I've got to send my mother-in-law the podcast of this sermon. Bad response. It's not what the Spirit intends for you. The appropriate response is not thinking of all the others you know who are religious people and acting self-righteous about how you've moved past being religious, but to self-reflect and to repent. To repent of our own righteous efforts at rule-keeping. Last thing, this text should show us how good Jesus Christ is. Religion is dead and cold and will leave you either profoundly empty or profoundly arrogant. And that's what Paul himself discovered. He was the most religious guy around. But when he met the resurrected Jesus, everything changed for him. He realized what he says in Philippians chapter 3, that all of it was crap. Literally what he says. All of it was dung. All of it was trash. All of it was garbage. 
compared to knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him, that somehow he may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is all that you need. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that religion can get you to a place where you already are in Christ. Let's pray.